Welcome to Living Proof, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. We're glad you could join us today. The series Living Proof examines social work research and practice that makes a difference in people's lives. I'm your host, Ajua Robinson, and I'd like to take a moment to tell you about a new feature of Living Proof. In addition to listening, subscribing to, and sharing podcasts, you can now rate and write a review of each episode of Living Proof. To rate or write a review of a podcast, just go to our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu forward slash podcast and click on the create your own review button. We look forward to hearing from you. Today's podcast features an interview with Dr. Elizabeth Reichert. Dr. Reichert is a professor of social work at Southern Illinois University at Carbondale, where she's been a member of the faculty since 1994. Dr. Reichert is a former Fulbright scholar and has worked as a clinical social worker for the Project Against Sexual Abuse of Appalachian Children. Dr. Reichert is a board member and editor of the journals Professional Development, the International Journal of Continuing Social Work Education, and Reflections, Journal of Professional Helping. Dr. Reichert has been a frequent presenter on issues of international child welfare, child sexual abuse, and adult survivors of sexual abuse, and has written extensively on the subject of human rights for scholarly journals and has authored and edited several books on human rights, including Challenges in Human Rights, a Social Work Perspective, Understanding Human Rights, an Exercise Workbook, and Social Work and Human Rights, a Foundation for Policy and Practice. Dr. Reichert was interviewed by Dr. Diane Elsie, Associate Professor and Director of the MSW Program at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. I'm Diane Elsie from the University at Buffalo School of Social Work, and I'm privileged to be speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Reichert from Southern Illinois University at Carbondale School of Social Work. Thank you for having me, Diane. Why don't we start out by talking about how you became interested uh-huh. in scholarship around human uh-huh. rights? I have a degree from Germany in social work, and the focus very much was on social justice, and we studied Paulo Freire and how to integrate his concepts of pedagogy of the oppressed into uh, vulnerable populations. Then I came to the United States on a Fulbright scholarship to study social work. I became more involved in the clinical practice of social work. But once I started academia, Janice Woodwetzel, at that time she was the dean at Adelphi University, asked me to join uh, at a symposium, a human rights symposium, at the fourth United Nations conference in Beijing, China. And so I went to the non-governmental NGO pre-conference, the fourth United Nations Women's Conference Mm -hmm. in China, Beijing, Wairo. And I was just really, really surprised and taken aback. There were 30,000 people from all over the world and they were talking about issues like poverty, discrimination, violence against women, environment, many, many social work issues. Yet I realized that social work had a very small role. We were invisible as a profession. And the theme of the conference also was look at the world through the eyes of women. And the theme was also women's rights are human rights. I was just impressed by this incredible 
activism, grassroots activism from women all over the world. There were some men there too, but it was just incredible. And they came, I talked to women, they came from the Trans-Siberian Railway or they came from Zambia and from Chile, Peru, from every part of the world. There were women representing non-governmental organizations advocating for the promotion of the well-being of human beings and especially women. And again, it just struck me, where is our profession? Those were all topics what we talk about as social workers, and there was this invisibility. So that was, to me, kind of a really powerful and eye-opening experience. And then I came back, and I started to look at teaching the human rights perspective. And uh, that's how I basically got involved. I want to come back to that, yes. you know, teaching a human yes. rights perspective yeah. and... And in yeah. social work, yeah. we talk about yeah. social justice, and we don't yeah. talk about human rights as yeah. much. Um, so could we f maybe start out by, could you define human rights and what you mean mm -hmm. by human rights? Mm -hmm. Human rights, there are several definitions, but the United Nations definition is human has the right to the basic needs just based on being human. And then the Universal Declaration spells that out, which is the beginning of the uh, official human rights movement in 1948, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights with its 30 articles. But that's also to be seen just as a beginning because many, many conventions and, and declarations and covenants have been passed since that time and some have become law. You can use the United Nations definition as everybody has basic human rights just being based on being human and those basic human rights are reflected in the Declaration of Human Rights. And those rights go beyond political and civil rights, but they yes. talk about social rights yes. and economic yes. rights yes. and cultural yes. rights. Yes. Yes. And so what explains in the United States the social work professions focus on social justice rather than on human rights? And how would having a human rights perspective enrich the mm -hmm. social work profession and social work mm -hmm. education? Mm -hmm. But human rights takes social justice just further. You see, we have already a tremendous grassroots movement out worldwide, constantly defining issues and children's rights and women's rights, people with disability, older people, indigenous people. Many, many other topics are being constantly discussed through NGOs. They're negotiated. They're then brought to the United Nations. We have a whole infrastructure of grassroots movements and organizations out there already discussing uh, those topics and how to make them into declaration and, and, and conventions, which then, if they become ratified, become law. The social justice is more like an academic term. It's more limited. Whoever defines it, and there's social and economic justice, which, you know, the human rights also includes. Um, it's just a more comprehensive look, way of looking at it. It takes it further. Now, in Europe, the uh, International yeah. Association of Social Work incorporates a human rights perspective, doesn't it? Oh, I was just in Europe. I came back, and uh, it, it really varies. I know um, Sylvia Stolbanasconi, she has a master's degree program in Berlin on human rights and social work, but 
uh, it also is not like every university has a strong teaching curricula. It's also mm -hmm. similar like here at the beginning phases of getting started and taking, taking it on. I think what's mm -hmm. different uh, just generally when you look at industrialized countries versus the U.S., then the U.S. puts a strong promotion on political and civil rights. The, it really falls short at social and economic rights, which, you know, of course, issues like health care, education, the kind of discrimination in education is really a, a big issue. But the International Federation of Social Work in their policy statement clearly says we're a human rights profession. In their code of ethics, it says we're a human rights profession. And also the basis for our profession is like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the Convention of the Rights of the Child, the Convention Against All Forms of Discrimination. This is the, against women. This is our basis for our profession. So it's, it's internationally conceptualized that we are a human rights profession. Uh, the NASW in their recent policy statement makes much stronger reference to human rights and uh, the, the new EPAS say we need to teach human rights. So we are moving in that direction and that's very exciting. So how do you bring a human rights perspective into your classroom? That was the challenge when I ended, when I came back from Beijing. I thought, how do I teach it? And I was looking and there was very little teaching material. There was the little blue book from the United Nations and the International Association of School of Social Work. They had a book out on how to teach it. Then Cho Wonka and Janice Woodwetzel, they had written about it, and Jim Ive in Australia. So, but I had to make make it to come, become alive. Human rights is not a boring legalistic concept, and maybe that's why it's also been a hindrance for social work to integrate it in the U.S. They think, oh, it's too legalistic, and you know, but it's not. So how do I make it exciting? And so I just uh, started to come up with uh, creative um, ways where students become active participants instead of just reading about documents. Human rights is not the study about the documents, though in human rights you do have to have a good foundation of the history, the documents, the controversy, the basic concepts of human rights versus universality versus cultural relativism, which means like, you know, often countries get criticized for everybody has a right to culture and how could we say you have to everybody has to be the same the West gets criticized to be very imperialistic and say we are calling the shots and telling maybe a culture developing country how to live their lives however if you look what cultural relativism means and it's important that every culture has uh, has strength and culture has a lot of uh, beauty but there are also limits to culture like if a if a, a country would say it's okay to beat women because our culture say that's just not acceptable anymore. So just to say culture, uh, we, we, we value culture, culture has limits and the limits are when human rights are violated. So, so culture is not a, a carte blanche to say my culture says I can beat women black and blue because it says, it says so in whatever religious documents, that's not acceptable anymore. So it is challenging culture and using the human rights principle. So you have to understand basic concepts about universality versus cultural relativism, understand the indivisibility of human rights, like they come in three different sets, the political civil rights, like freedom of speech, religion, non-discrimination, due process, the political rights, the social economic rights, the right to 
housing, food, shelter, social services. And then the third generation that the world, we are in all of this together, there needs to be international cooperation. We have to work together. No country can just say, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to pollute the environment and not, not ever sign any treaties. That's not acceptable. So you have to understand those concepts. You have to understand critical thinking, too, because human rights have been kind of used in all strange ways to, to justify means. We have to understand that human rights also have been used in the past as a political tool. So it's, it's really just studying the concepts, the history, using power analysis, for instance, back to cultural relativism. If, uh, if a country says beating a wife is, is okay, then you have to analyze who has the voices in there, mm -hmm. you know, who, who, whose voices are being heard in that culture. And it's really always about empowering the ones who don't have the voices and who have been left out and ha who have, you know, in that using the example of battered women who have been, uh, in that case, battered women. Are, who, who is speaking that this is okay? I mean, in this country 100 years ago, that was okay too, and, and we still have society where well, that's okay, but the human rights clearly says you cannot use culture to justify human rights violations. What about social work practice? If students, we're teaching students this knowledge yeah. base around human rights, and what would it then mean for their practice? What would social work practice look mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. if it was being yeah. practiced with a human rights yeah. perspective? Yeah. Well, one, on one hand, you can look at the different ways of feminist practice, how to really empower the voices of women who have been silenced, how you use that in a kind of a practice model or the strength perspective, yet you'd look at the environments that somebody has overcome tremendous obstacles and use that also, the, the analysis of the environment and how the person is, and, and looking at the strength, uh, the cultural competency. You can weave it into the practice kind of models of direct practice. You can use it if you would work as a director of a women's center, that you also use it as an advocacy tool. You collect through your NGO, through your social service agency, all the data. You connect it back to the NASW or to the human, you feed your data back to the United Nations, to the Human Rights Commission. Do not just leave the data and what you're seeing, what's happening in your own community. You try to get it back more on a political level. For instance, we could use that like many children don't have health care and use that back to reactivate that we could get the convention of the rights of the child maybe being discussed again because that's not ratified in the United States and the only two countries who haven't ratified that. So the practice is, yeah, what practice do you talk, are you talking about? Are you talking more the clinical practice? Are you talking, you know, more if you work on a more administrative advocacy level? but it is always about connecting it. So you mentioned earlier that controversy mm -hmm. around universality versus mm -hmm. cultural relativism. Mm -hmm. Could you say more about that? Because that appears to be a big controversy mm -hmm. in the area of human rights. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there seem to be two sides. One, universality, which means that we have a set of principles, like ethical principles, they apply to everyone, no matter where she lives, she or he lives. And those are basic human rights and human needs. The other extreme is that a culture may say, no, we, we have arranged marriages. We do not like what's in the Universal Declaration like uh, that you can pick your partner. 
So there are like two extremes, like one set of ethical principles applies for everyone, and the other one, we have cultural values, and we cherish those, and we do not want to be told from an outsider how to live our lives. So the thing is to really analyze, you know, what, what issue are we talking about it? Uh, cultures have values. In the past, we looked at Nazi Germany. The cultural value was very inhumane and hor- horrific to, towards Jewish and other people, how they were treated. That was a cultural norm and a cultural value, and that had to be challenged. Or in the United States, in the South, the racial politics that was also cultural, and it, that culture had to be challenged. So it's really important to critically analyze that culture and look at the history, the origins. You, you analyze it, and you can use in a, in a cultural norm analyze. You can look at the declaration, at the basic human rights. How does this particular cu- culture value those rights? And so you analyze the history. You analyze how, how does it fit with the human rights principles. Then you analyze who has the power to define the culture? And that's really, really important. Who has the voices? I did some research on female genital mutilation in Sudan. And in 1920, it was outlawed. It was against the law to, to have this procedure. However, the, the people uh, really didn't care about the law, and nobody enforced that law. So they just continued female genital mutilation. Now we see many movements, grassroots movements in Africa, and they're not Western movements. They're movements from the local communities and countries saying this is really extremely harmful to our girls and we want this practice stopped. And so they're having all sorts of interesting approaches. One is going to the village elders and sitting down with them and talking to them. And they also had some success where there was a realization coming from the elders, that's the ones who have the power to give the okay to the community to say, let's stop that, that's really not a good practice. So social work really is in the business of challenging cultural practices which are harmful. And that's where I think social work really comes in. The the legal profession is more about writing up the legal concepts. And our job is more of challenging cultural practices where people are hurt or left out or don't have power or are excluded. Uh, issue of poverty is a big issue. And when we think about the world poverty, it's, it's just really horrendous when we realize how many people live in poverty and trying to find a solution how to eradicate poverty worldwide as well as in the United States. And we want to analyze the policies. We want to analyze the, the voices of the people you know, who has the power, who can change, how do those issues like poverty relate to human rights principles, and then what advocacy model do we have in place? And that's where we try to to go from the grassroots to using the media to bring about changes to United Nations. You know, before you talked about female genital mutilation, that was certainly an issue that was on my mind. And when we talk about human rights with our students, the issue of female genital Mm -hmm. mutilation is one that students often Mm -hmm. bring up in trying to reconcile those principles of universality versus cultural relativism Mm -hmm. and the presence of an indigenous movement of people within a country 
working against female genital mutilation mm -hmm. is important when we analyze, yes. is there yes. such a presence? Yes. Yes. And the presence of that kind of movement yeah. is, is mm -hmm. important to our analysis. Now certainly, of course, here in the United States, healthcare policy mm -hmm. is on everybody's mind. Mm -hmm. and, and is healthcare, you know, there's, there's a difference of opinion about whether healthcare is a privilege versus healthcare is a human right. And I think that the United States has been reluctant as a culture, we're reluctant to frame our social issues as human mm -hmm. rights issues. Mm -hmm. Poverty, health disparities, healthcare. Education, the inequality of education. It's right. Another one. So what is that? reluctance? What explains that cultural reluctance that we have here in mm -hmm. the U.S. to really embrace mm -hmm. a human rights mm -hmm. perspective? We see, I think, human rights violations as violations that other countries mm -hmm. commit. Mm -hmm. And we don't see our own inequities as mm -hmm. human rights mm -hmm. violations. Mm -hmm. That's a good point, Diane. And I think one area is that the human rights office, that the United States focus on human rights has been the political and civil rights. And the social and economic rights actually have fallen wayside. You can even go back and research how Universal Declaration, how that came into being in 1948. Eleanor Roosevelt was the chair of the commission to write the Declaration of Human Rights. There were 60 member states at that time, former colonies, or at that time many colonialized countries were not at the table. There were countries on the table where South Africa, Lebanon, the Soviet bloc, uh, Western Europe, Germany was not on, Latin America, the United States. And so much of the debates were issues like we need social economic rights and we need political rights. And it's very interesting to hear the debates then already, uh, clashes between Soviet bloc and United States. The United States said to the Soviets, you have your gulags, you, you need to provide political rights. The Soviets said, but look at you, how you treat African Americans, shame on you, America. So there was a, lo a lot of going back and forth, and the Latin American had a strong push towards we have to pro provide social and economic rights to prevent social unrest. We had several survivors of the Holocaust sitting uh, and drafting the declaration. So that controversy wasn't new, and um, that the United States was not so much uh, taken by the social and economic rights. And that just continued, even after then the Cold War. And, and I think the theme that developed in the perception in the United States that human rights are, quote, just political and civil rights, and they don't include economic and social rights. So I think that comes out, the, the thinking that social and economic rights, they, they're not really rights. They, they just could be considered seen as privileges. So I think that explains a little bit the reluctance, maybe also lack of understanding really what that is. That's why human rights education is really, really important. Without understanding it, we can, they really have little meaning.
human rights. They cannot be accessed, we cannot make use of them, we cannot, people don't know about them, and that's why we have that debate today. I think if, for instance, the United States has not signed the Convention on Social and Economic Rights, has signed it but not ratified it, if it had ratified it, we would have health care, for instance, would be a right. And we haven't signed, have we, the Convention on the Rights of the Child? We have signed it but not ratified we it. Ratified when you ratify it, then it becomes law. And ratifying mm -hmm. means you need two-thirds of the Congress to vote for it, just like the Convention Against All Forms of Discrimination has been signed. But at that time, I know Jesse Helms, at that time, he said he would make sure it would collect dust and never be discussed in the Congress. So it's really important for us as social workers to understand the history, understand the documents, understand the discussions, so be back on the table and having our voices heard and, ad and also speaking and having a voice again because we work with clients, we, we see what's happening and, and how people experience, the, many of the have-nots experience the world and, and we are not really on the discussion table, and that's mm -hmm. what I'd like to see us move forwards to mm -hmm. really understand it, understand the controversies, and find ways to have voices on the table. Mm -hmm. In listening to mm -hmm. you talk, I mean, human rights is really a very, it's very much an evolving and mm -hmm. dynamic yeah. concept. How we think about human rights has changed over time. Women's yeah. rights as human yes. rights is much more yeah. present now in the discussion. Yes, yes, yes. that's also came out of a grassroots kind of movement. Women's rights are human rights because in 1948, it, the concept as women's rights are human rights didn't really exist. It was ex extensive grassroots movement and organizations that in uh, one of the big United Nations movements in Vienna in 1993, eventually it was voted in that women's rights are human rights. And then the follow-up conference was in 95 in Beijing that women's rights are human rights. And look at the systematic discrimination against women all over the world in all different areas. And so we communicate on, you know, if you pick a, a topic like education and, and girls or poverty, you can pick any topic that is already, a, you can start in your community and you can go really global with that in communication and learning from each other and what we can do. We also can learn a lot from each other. I think that in the United Nations conference, I found out many. It was a wonderful networking tool. Mm -hmm. Women all over the world discussing, you know, how do you approach, for instance, domestic violence? How, how do you work in your community? How do you work on the, the media? How do you work with the government? One of the other controversies, you know, we talked about universality versus cultural relativism. One of the other controversies around human rights is that folks allege that it's a very Western concept. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little about that? Diane, that's a very good question, and I, I hear that a lot, the criticism, you know, human rights is a Western male perspective. And uh, again, you, you examine history, and when you look at history, human rights, actually you can go back two or 3,000 years ago through the philosophies and different religions and so, but let's just look at the Enlightenment period in Europe, like French Revolution, for instance, there was Irma de Gaulle, she fought for women's rights at the French Revolution, and um, after the revolution was over, she was beheaded. Women had to wait another over 200 years to have women's rights or human rights. However, the French Revolution did for, uh, provide for white men uh, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and things like that, and later a lot of those concepts were were brought into the U.S. Constitution. So the whole Enlightenment period, free speech, due process, freedom of religion, 
later the industrialized revolution bringing the social and economic rights. They also came from the Europe, from the period of industrialization. So those concepts, they did develop from the West, the Enlightenment period. However, today you can talk to, to a person from Malaysia or Singapore or Zambia or wherever, and the principles of the human rights are seen as nothing Western anymore. The right to speak, the right to not to be discriminated, the right to due process, those are not considered today anymore as Western concept. They are really embraced by the whole world. Those are values we really cherish and we have to have as well as the economic and social rights to have minimum standards of food, shelter, housing, education. Those are minimum standards to, to live in dignity and that, that's not a Western concept anymore. But I do understand when people say, you know, it came out of the West and therefore we are hesitant about it. Even the creation of the declaration, and there was, as I said earlier, 60 member states and all the countries who were at that time still colonialized were not on the negotiation table. So it is important that we just really study, you know, some historical aspects and also study the contemporary aspects. But I think to say it's a Western concept today does not bring justice to the concept what they are today by listening to the voices from all over the people. It's not a luxury to be able to speak or to have minimum standards. That argument, I don't think, really holds up anymore. Because it does seem that many grassroots movements in many countries have been involved mm -hmm. with the UN efforts mm -hmm. around mm -hmm. creating these documents. And there's multiple yes. documents yeah. now, yes. multiple yes. conventions. Yes. So sometimes, you know, people think that United Nations writes, they write the conventions, but they write it after getting tremendous input from the grassroots. Sometimes my, my students think it's United Nations, they sit and they write, but it's really important to understand that it's the grassroots who is feeding United Nations, and that's why we have to have a place on the table to bring and have our input. And I think that is the challenge of social work, to create a space on that table that we are there too and being part on, on the discussion. On a different yeah. topic, you're very involved in organizing study abroad programs yeah. that focus yeah. on human rights yes. for yes. social work yes. students yes. and educators. Yes. Could yes. you talk a little yeah. about yeah. that and tell yes. us what you're doing? Yeah. I've done it for many years and I change it and the current program I do is um, looking at, at human rights and social work and one part I integrate concepts of what we talked about earlier is looking at the history. I think a historical analysis really is really important. And so I look at the beginning of the Universal Declaration in 1948 as a direct result of World War II. Albert Einstein once said World War III would be fought the sticks and stone. The world knew we cannot afford another war. That would be the end of humankind. So that document came out of necessity of prevention of war. So when I take the students in Munich, we stay in Munich, Germany, I take them to Dachau, a concentration camp, and I tell them this is how it ends. What is it we have to do to prevent, and where does it start? And then we go to Nuremberg. Nuremberg is now a human rights city by, called by the UNESCO. It's really interesting because it had a very dark part of history 
during Hitler, but it's now a human rights city. So we go and we look at interactive historical museum and it starts in 1918. 1918, World War One was over, and after that, Germany had one of the most progressive democracies in the world. Women could vote. It was very, very progressive on all levels. But then the Great Depression hit, and the world market crashed, and there was horrendous social condition and unemployment, and that kind of fed into the race of fascism. And that interactive music shows you really how that happened. And it also then shows how you know ideas he didn't start with Dachau. How did he start not only Hitler, the whole, there were more people than him. How did they start to manipulate people? How did the, he grab power? How did he change law? How did the teachers teach in school? And you see, how did the musicians present their ideology? You see, every fabric of society became enmeshed and how gradually it happened, though rapidly, but gradually. So my point is really to help students see how, how does it happen because we have to start very early to to speak up. At the end, it's much harder to speak up. So we learn about the, the development of the history, and the museum ends with Jackson's speech at the Nuremberg trial, where he said, you know, it is important to provide due, due process. We want to show the world that there is a world court, and we, we want to have a due process. We don't just shoot people and say, you know, you do not get due process. This is what we do. We put you on trial, and we, we have this out in the open. It's really a powerful speech, and it, it ties it into the concept of the International Criminal Court, which basically Nuremberg started, the United States started that. Yet today, the United States is not a member of the International Criminal Court. Then we go literally to the Nuremberg, to the courthouse, where the trial happened, and we, uh, the people there tell us it's actually, uh, there's a movie out, the last, the judgment of Nuremberg from the 50s, and it is actually 99% accurate. And you hear all the details about the, the, the trial, and the, mm. it was very messy, but the Americans took a strong stance of having this, yeah, having due process and having this, 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 this trial. So the Americans were really a leader at that time in providing concepts of due process and not just shooting people. So after that, we have discussion with our uh, European counterparts. We have, I have worked with colleagues in Germany, University of Coburg, and with the, the Human Rights Center there, we discuss, you know, what you're seeing today and what you think the current human rights issues are today. It's also important to connect it back to the past and the here and now, or what do you think in the United States the human rights history or issues are and how are we dealing with past abuses. So it's really important to always make the connection and go back and forth. You don't want to just stay in the past. You always have to connect it back mm -hmm. into the current situation. And then I also revisit one of the survivors of the White Rose. They had a small resistance movement, a student group movement of Sophie Scholl, as the students to watch the movie, The Last Day of Sophie Scholl. And then uh, Sophie Scholl was the leader of a student movement. She spoke, they spoke out and they distributed flyers in Munich in the, in the early 40s against Hitler. Somebody ranted on her and the whole group was discovered. So she was put to trial and she was uh, asked if she endorsed Hitler, she would go free and she refused to endorse him and they shot her. And one of the survivors of the group, he is still alive, Franz Josef Müller, he's now about 84 years old, so we speak to him. So the power to speak out, you see, that's also the lesson the students will learn, that it's important to speak out. And we had people who, who spoke out. It's just human rights also does involve taking risk and speaking out.
so we have this Zeitzeuge, kind of witness of his time. I think that's really powerful too, mm. we see that. So how so, do you see students coming back from that experience uh -huh. changed? Uh -huh. As I said, we want to capture the society from different angles. We go to the museum and we look at, it, at the last hundred years of the development in Europe or Germany through an arts perspective. And we interpret art through telling the stories of the whole two wars and social conditions and the change of values. How is that being expressed through art? And we visit an agency also who works, Refugio. They work with uh, children who've been traumatized by war. They have refugees in Germany. Many of them come from Iraq and Afghanistan and have horrendous journeys to get there. In Germany, often they don't get a visa for a, a work visa for a long time. But anyway, this agency works through art and empowerment. They have artists and social workers working to help children tell their stories through art. And they're very connected to the city, so they have also uh, community kind of exhibitions. And the city supports that very much, that center, and supports that agency. So the human rights perspective through art. We have several other agencies I could go on and on, but it's always how is social work practice you know, how do you integrate the human rights perspective into your practice? We do the same visiting an HIV AIDS agency. They do fantastic work. They have, uh, for older people, they have apartments and they do a lot of educational uh, projects. They have uh, their own kitchen and they have the, the Regenbogen Cafe. They run their own cafe. It's very popular. They have delicious food. We eat there all the time. And mm. They're very connected to the politicians. They get a lot of support because they do a lot of outreach, community programs, and so that's, it's interesting to see at the micro level how the support on the counseling, but also on the larger level, how they work on the political scheme. But the city of Munich is it's a, it's very supportive of that program, and they get quite a bit of funding to help people with HIV AIDS. They tell me, too, we need more international content in our social work class, and, and I just think it's so important. We can't afford to be so isolated. See, geographically, the U.S. is kind of, it's just harder for us to travel, but it's essential today, and I think, you know, the issue with going to Europe is like, here you have a similar country, industrialized countries, yet you have in Western Europe, the social nets are so much more extensive. Like, it's not, it could never be a debate in Germany, healthcare, yes or no. My European colleagues tell me it's immoral to think that millions of people have no health care. We cannot imagine that. And so I just want students to have a different glimpse. You know, there's a society with great infrastructure and social nets and just see a different society. And I don't mean to say they don't have problems. They have other types of problems, too, and they want to learn from us. For instance, the lack of integration of Turkish immigrants, I think, is a big problem. So I don't want to say that everything is wonderful there. And the, no, they have also really severe problems. So for us, it's more just to learn from each other. Mm -hmm. Like I also have students come from Europe and they want to learn about all sorts of issues in the US. It's just to create a communal learning experience. That's all. It's not to mm -hmm. say this is better or you're better. It's just be open and learn. The same, I think, for the whole topic you asked earlier about how should we go here in our profession with human rights, just be open and embrace the learning just like we tell our students. You know? Have the yes. curiosity yes. And about yes. it that we yes. want our students uh -huh. to have. Yes, that we have to keep having that for ourselves. Well, thank uh -huh. you so uh -huh. much. It's been yeah. inspirational yeah. uh -huh. to talk yeah. with yeah. you. Thank you so Great. much, Diane, well, thank for having you. me. It was a pleasure. 
You've been listening to Dr. Elizabeth Reichert, Associate Professor of Social Work at Southern Illinois University at Carbondale, discuss human rights and social work. Thanks for listening, and join us again next time for more lectures and conversations on social work practice and research. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. For more information about who we are, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. At UB, we are living proof that social work makes a difference in people's lives.